You know, what we've done so far then is to analyze 20th century thought and where it came from on the philosophic side and where it came from on the scientific side and the dilemmas of 20th century thought as well. And specifically, the 20th century thought can be therefore spoken of as a giving up of reason to hold on to rationalism or we can emphasize the fact that it's on the the fact that it's, their view is the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. That everything is a part of the cosmic machine. And the explosion at Berkeley in 1964 that has so changed the world and the whole world really came simply from, from this. And that is modern man on every side, uh, first of all in philosophy and in the arts and music and common media in theology has been emphasizing the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system, in which man is reduced to a machine. And well, we can say it the other way, and that is that the basic philosophic uh, form of 20th century thought is that everything began with the impersonal, and you explain everything, including uh, the universe and man, on the basis of merely chance and time. And then we've been looking at the Christian cosmogamy, and which is completely different and begins with the concept of the personal. And as I pointed out this morning, it's uh, the old question that used to be raised to me, well, if God exists, has he existed forever? How could he exist forever? Never is asked to me an intellectual discussion anymore. And the reason it's not asked anymore is because the real thinkers today realize that they must begin with something too. They have to have an impersonal factor present for eternity in the way we put the personal factor present for eternity. And then we went for, went forward this morning and we looked at the Christian cosmogamy as realizing that something, according to the Christian cosmogamy, is before, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That it's not a creation out of nothing, nothing, uh, but God is there and uh, God has always existed and love and communication has been present for all eternity. And consequently, when man feels the need of love and when man feels the need of communication, he's not alienated from an impersonal universe, but rather in contrast to that, in his feeling of his mannishness, uh, he is he can be fulfilled by the universe that exists. Now I want to go on and spend a little bit more time on this positive side of the Christian cosmogamy, and then either this afternoon or tomorrow I want to get into the results in sociology of modern man's thinking, where I think what I think comes next in our uh, in our culture and in our society and government and so on. The Bible constantly puts creation at the center. It isn't just these few verses that I have read, uh, but you find it in a constant framework. For example, in the Psalms, time after time you begin with the Psalms, time after time you begin with, uh, with creation. And in Psalm 100, for example, in Psalm 136, you have creation as history, and then the past Jewish history is history. And then the present Jewish history, that is present at the time of the psalm, is history. And the, Psalm 136 is quite typical of the way the whole thing is treated. The whole thing is treated as history, as something which is in space and time. In Jeremiah 10:16, you have one of these places where the Old Testament, as well as the New, makes this emphasis of creation to be the central point, not salvation, but creation. As I pointed out, the beginning of the Bible is not salvation. The beginning of the Bible is creation. And the beginning of the classical theologies never began with soteriology, they began with theology proper. And they began with the, uh, the high personal level of what exists in the Trinity that has always existed, in which there was love and communication before the creation of the world. 
Now in Jeremiah we read in the 10th uh, verse, in the 10th chapter, the 16th verse, the portion of Jacob is not like unto them. Now what are they talking about? Well, back in the, the previous verses, uh, in verses 11 and 12, it's talking about the idols. The idols made of stone are not like the portion of Jacob, and God is the portion of Jacob. So whether it's the idols made of wood or stone, or the gods made in the Greek and the Roman mind, in the projection of the mind of men, or in the 20th century integration points, generated out of man's humanism, out of his rationalism, while he's being finite, trying to gather enough particulars, as I've pointed out, that rationalism is, to make its own universals. In contrast to that, the, 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 the portion of Jacob is in contrast, not only to the gods of silver and stone, but the integration points that are projected from the rationalistic and humanistic mind of men. And what makes him different? Well, the 16th verse, the portion of Jacob is not like unto them, for he is a former of all things. In other words, he is before all things. And you have this you have this setting over and over and over and over again. Now this is completely in contrast with the new theology. Because as you remember, I pointed out over and over again now in the post kirkegaardian world, the new theology is quite different. The new theology down here, or the new theology is up here where there's no content about God, and you never have a personal God. You never have a personal God. The God is merely another form of trick. But there's no real difference between using Christ and Krishna in this sort of a setting. Uh, but it isn't, this is very, very different, very different from the, the thing that is set forth in Scripture and the, the Christian answer to the intellectual problem. And that is the new theology, the new theology does not begin with an emphasis of any certainty that he is there. The Christian theology begins, the neo-orthodox theology, the Christian theology begins with the emphasis that he really is there. That's why my basic book is called The God the God who is there. He really exists, and he's always been there. But it's not only an abstract intellectual answer, as wonderful as that would be, and somebody like myself who's become a Christian out of agnosticism, it's marvelous that we have this answer, this overwhelming answer the Bible gives us to the intellectual problem. But having said this, it is not only an intellectual answer. It doesn't become a new form of scholasticism. It isn't an abstraction. But he is our portion. And then that makes all the difference. So it is not only, it goes a step further, it is not only that we have an intellectual answer, but we are invited to be in relationship with him. And it's not abnormal that we should be in relationship with him, because he is not the philosophic other. He is infinite, but we are personal, and, uh, but he is personal. We are finite, but we are personal. And from the Christian viewpoint, there is nothing unnatural that man should be in relationship with God. The only reason man is in relationship with God is not the metaphysical problem, that man is small and God is big, but the moral problem, that man is revolted against God, and because God really is the moral absolute, therefore man has real guilt in the presence of God. So man is separated from God, not on the basis of a metaphysical smallness, but on the basis of a moral, the moral level of personal guilt. And then the solution, of course, comes in Christ. But the solution co comes at this place. The solution is not placed in a vacuum in the biblical emphasis. So what we now have, we have, we have the opportunity, however, after we've seen what the answer is, not only to have the, the only intellectual answer, I think, that exists for these questions, and if you want to pursue this further, I'd urge you to read my book, He's There and He's Not Silent, in which I go through the metaphysical needs, the problems, and then the moral problems, and then the epistemological problems, and how Christianity does give the only answer that man has ever come to in either any of these three levels, metaphysically, moral, or epistemologically. So now when you... But it isn't only an abstraction. He becomes my portion. 
But you must see that the emphasis is on begins with, he is the former of all things. And if we do not stress the fact that the, he is the former of all things, personality is the form of all things on the high level of personality, if we do not, of, the, of trinity, if we do not stress this, we have no cosmogamy. This is the Christian cosmogamy, and it's imperative that we have it consciously in our minds. The book of Revelation, the fourth, the, uh, fourth chapter in the eleventh verse, stresses this same kind of a thing in Revelation 4.11. Unfortunately, the King James translation is very poorly translated here. It's a very poor rendering. What the, what the Greek says, Thou art worthy, our Lord, to receive the glory and the honor and the power. For Thou hast created all things, and because of Thy will they were and were created. It does not say, for Thy pleasure they, were and were cre- they are and were created. I'm not saying that's the wrong thought, but it's not what's taught here. What's taught here is the factor that they exist because of an act of the will of God. The very opposite of the man who had tried to start, as I said, with nothing, nothing. You remember what I said this morning, that if you were going to start with nothing, nothing, which no, no thinker in the world thinks of today. Everybody thinks starts with something. But if you, uh, if you were going to say nothing, nothing, as I said, you draw a circle on a perfectly clean blackboard or and then you put everything that ever exists and ever will exist within that circle, and you have nothing in the circle, and then you rub out the circle, and that would be nothing, nothing. And that nobody holds it. But the Christian view of creation ex nihilo is not creation out of nothing, nothing, because God was already there. It's a very great distinction. So when we hold creation ex nihilo, let us be very, 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 very careful to understand and make it plain in our teaching that we're not teaching a creation out of nothing, nothing. We're talking out of the fact that you had a personal beginning, and this, the world came into being uh, on the basis of the will of God, the will of God who was already there. I don't like the New English Bible at all in most of the places. I think it's a poor translation and a, um, a slanted one. But in this particular place, the New English translation for modern man's thinking is a good translation. And that is, is it's, uh, it's translated here, By thy will they were created and have their being. The word being is right here in the 20th century. So the, the whole discussion today is in the area of being. Why is it there? As I quoted John Paul Sartre, the basic philosophic question is if something is there rather than nothing being there. What is the answer to being? And modern man spells it with a capital B always for some strange reason. I don't know why, but he does. Uh, but, so, but here is your answer to being. And the New English translation really is magnificent at this one particular point. By thy will they were created and they have their being. So the being, the being of the external world and of men's existence is not God. It's a very important thing. The Bible is contrary to all forms of pantheism, of pan-everythingism. The, the existence, the existence of the external world and of men is not God. It is not pantheistic. But the external world and man exist because of an act of the will of the personal, the personal which existed prior to their being. In other words, it is not an extension of their essence, but they only exist because the, the personal created them. So this thing really has many ramifications. Uh, actually, this thing I'm giving you, the last period in this, is, is the most modern kind of discussion you can have. As I go from here to Yale, my discussions will be centered in this area. If I lecture as I go to Cambridge or Oxford, it would be in this area. Uh, this is as modern as the most modern discussion on the left bank of Paris that's being held today. 
And the Bible is not without an answer for it. The Bible, I would insist, as I say in, in this book of mine, he's there and he's not silent, gives the only, the only possible answer to the existence, to the question of, uh, of being. And notice that he didn't create because he had to create, which is the next step in the Christian cosmogony. He is not a determinist, he is not a determined God. He did not create. And again, you had the old, uh, the old discussion and someone would say to you, is God love? Yes, God is love. Well, then he had to create in order to have something to love, and therefore God is de- as dependent upon the universe as the universe is dependent upon him. But you only say this if you don't understand the, the fact of the Trinity. As we pointed out that the Bible insists that there was communication among the members of the Trinity prior to the creation of the world. And it's a, this is one of the two great points where Islam differs from Christianity, where Islam is completely different in its thought form. And it doesn't have the answer, because Islam, Islam has no trinity. And consequently, if you're talking to an educated man from the Muslim world, as I do well, many, many times, you find that this is one point where they're very, very, very uh, cast down as you talk to them, if you talk to them gently and with compassion and carefully and get a good empathy, because they have no answer for this, because they have no trinity. But to the Christian, it is not so. The Christian, we have, there's God with God who uh, in the level of Trinity already had someone there to love and he had someone there to have communication with and therefore this being the case if one person the Trinity loved the other person the other another person the Trinity and there was communication God did not have to create so you have a Christianity is a completely non-deterministic system all the way back to creation so in contrast to B.F. Skinner and the modern man who only gives us determinism Christianity is non-deterministic from the very start because you have a non-determined you have a non-determined God. It's God who freely created. He created by an act of His will, and this is the reason that being in the modern sense exists. Now, here, this is to my mind, as I would urge you, the place of the beginning of worship and awe. The modern man, the modern man, such as Henry Miller's last writings, tries to find awe in the un, uh, in the that which is unknown and the unknowable. Christianity should have all. We must never let these great teachings we have degenerate into mere doctrinal repetitions. So you can have, you make, you make, you can make either mistake. You can get, get away from the content like the new theology does, away from the content of uh, any content in theology, or you can make it only content to be repeated repetitively. And both, I don't know which is worse. Both are destructive. I guess the first is worse, but both are destructive. Because the Christianity doesn't end there. The Christianity ends with us being in relationship with God and being in awe and worship before God. And our worship services on Sunday morning should bear out that awe and that worship. But the awe and the worship, the awe and the worship, uh, is rooted in the creation by the God who has given knowledge of himself. Because you need a second step. You need not only a God who exists, but a God who has given knowledge, content, propositional knowledge about himself. So you need, you need the propositional knowledge as well as you need the fact of his existence. Because unless he reveals himself, you cannot know him. So you're round in a big circle to the whole discussion of propositional, propositional revelation. But the awe and the worship which we should feel does not begin with the fact that we are, we, he has saved us. The awe and the worship which we, which we should feel is rooted, is rooted in the fact that he exists and has created. And he has created all things. And the awe and the worship of the 20th century religious man, whether it's the modern theologian of a man like Tillich, 
or whether it would be much of the Jesus freak thing. It, it, is, it is rooted in an irrational leap. It is rooted in this thing that, as I say, has marked the 20th century man above everything else, and that is living in a dichotomy. And so his religious things are always up here, in the upper story of the area of the non-reason. But Christianity insists, no, that if you're all in worship, and that's where Henry Miller's was at the end of his life, if the awe and worship is rooted in the is only is only rooted uh, in the uh, contentless religious experience, religious experience in the 20th century religious, 20th century religious, it's wrong. It's taking the name of the Lord in vain. It's another way of taking the name of the Lord in vain. It's taking the name of the Lord in vain to center your awe and your worship in a contentless religious experience, where it can be Christ or Krishna, when God has given his content about himself. So it becomes very sobering, this whole emphasis today of moving from the existential experience and the final experience to the drug experience, the Eastern religious experience to the Jesus thing. It becomes very, very sobering where it's contentless religious experience. It is really not something that's neutral. It's something that's wrong when we center our awe and our worship in this rather than centering our awe and our worship in the content, in the content which he has given us. Now then, our praise to him when we stand up on Sunday mornings and we preach and we pray or we live our lives all through all seven days of the week, our praise services should not begin with merely that we have been saved. You listen to many evangelicals. They thank God, they thank God that they've been saved, but they never thank God for what is back of the salvation, the existence of God himself and the fact that God has created. And this is really, I prefer not, this is really a weakness. This is really a weakness. So now what you have is your praise. Your praise is not centered in the area, is not, I'm sorry, your praise is not first of all in the area of soteriology. Your praise is in the basis as he is there, he's always been there, he has existed forever, and that he willed all things, including man, into existence. That I would have no existence if it were not for his having done so. Now then, at that particular point, at that particular point, then it opens the door for salvation. Because then we see what is wrong with, with our relationship. Is that, that we are, re, our problem is not because we are small, but because we have revolted. Then we can see the need of a Savior and we can accept the Savior. Then we can praise Him for our salvation. But I'm convinced for preaching to 20th century man, for 20th century evangelism, it, the, the, to call for people to accept Christ as their Savior too early, before it's in the structure of the whole thing beginning with the existence of a personal God in creation merely invites men to make an upper story leap and to have really just another form of trip. So I think we must be very careful at this point. These things are not just theoretical. Uh, they're very, they're very, very important. Now the next question is, of course, in our uh, cosmogamy is how did he create? How did he create? And in the book of Hebrews, in the 11th chapter, in the third verse, in Hebrews 11.3, we read there, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. We are framed by the word of God. And here we have, here we have our concept of the fiat. He spoke and it was. He spoke and it was. Now, in parenthesis here, let me point out that those people who would use this verse to emphasize that really all we need is faith and not content are quite mistaken. The way we know about the creation, which is what is being dealt with here, is not through a blind leap of upper story faith. The way we know about it is from the scripture in which God has spoken. 
So we can believe, and you remember my definition of the difference between faith and faith, modern man's faith in Kierkegaardian sense and the historic Christian faith, the mountain climber. Um, you, here we have something we know by faith in that for good and sufficient reasons we have come to the place wherein we have believed God. But if we don't know it by faith in the sense of faith in contrast to content taught in the scriptures. That's all parenthesis for this verse. But what you have here is the emphasis, the emphasis that the worlds were framed uh, by the word of God. Now we have something here that is parallel to the artist's creation but different from it. And I remember when I was younger, I never let anybody say that the artist created. I always said I thought that ought to be saved for God's creation. And then as years went on, I thought that I had made a serious mistake here, that in reality there's something glorious in using the word creation for God's creation and man's creation. It's related to the fact that man is created in the image of God. Man doesn't need some kind of a muse standing back of him to cause him to create. He creates because of who he is, as made, as made in the image of God. So we find that there are parallels to the artist's creation and uh, the creation, the creation of, uh, of God. And the big basic thing is uh, that the artist creates, or uh, the artist conceives, I'm sorry, the artist conceives, and then he brings forth what he has conceived into the external universe. In other words, he externalizes, he externalizes what he has already conceived. That's exactly parallel to what God has done. Exactly. He has, made, he has externalized the universe. He has exter externalized the cosmos. He thought of what it was, and then he brought it forth. And it's not to be confused. It's not the same before and after he has created. And this illustration I use many, many times uh, of, the, uh, of uh, Michelangelo's painting of creation on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, in the barrel ceiling there, where God is creating, man has his finger out, God has his finger out, and then the factor that uh, God has his arm back, his left arm back, and under his left arm he has uh, little cherubs, which are pictures of high Renaissance angels, and then he has a girl. You can tell she's a girl. She's got breasts. She has a girl's body. She's a girl. And uh, in this, uh, usually it has been said, and I think probably so, although there's no final proof of it, that this was Eve. Now then, notice what you have here. Is it a Christian painting or a non-Christian painting? Well, it's a non-Christian painting if you say because God knew what she looked like before he created her, that she was just as real before he created her as after he created her. But it's a Christian painting if you say he knew what she looked like. So what you have is God externalizing these things. Well, the artist externalizes too. For instance, when Frankie makes one of his, draws one of his paintings, it comes out of his mind and he externalizes it. And it's something new in the world. There's never been a painting in the world like this. The engineer does the same thing. He externalizes what has been the concepts of his mind. Well, now this is, God did the same. That, that he externalized, he externalized, when he created Eve, he externalized the girl that he already knew what she would look like. But she was not externalized so she was externalized. <coughs> so the philosophic term here is potential in Christian system, potentiality is not actuality. That's the way, never mind, if that doesn't mean anything to you, don't bother. But that's the way, that's the way it's said. This is what the Christian position is here. So what you have, therefore, is that the, the human artist externalizes and God externalizes by his creation. God caused to be objective. It's not just in his mind. It's not an extension of his essence. He really has caused something to be in existence which really exists now because he made it to exist. 
And the only way I know to say this to 20th century man is that when he created, he created things outside of himself. And you're not speaking about spatially. You're talking about the concept. It is not a part of himself. It is really outside of himself. The universe really exists after he has, after he has made it. Now also parallel to the human, human artist is the fact that we can know something about the artist by his creation. And the Bible insists we can know something about God by his creation, even though it now has been spoiled by the fall. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. So here are parallels between the human artist, the human creator, and God as the great creator. But now there is a difference between the human creator and the great creator. There's a very different, great difference, and that is man is finite, and only God is infinite. So therefore what we find out is that God, that man, man is only able to create out of that which already is there. And that's in two areas. The first is in the area of the pigment which he uses, the clay which he uses, the iron in which he casts. These have already been made by God. So what has already been made by God, he can use now for creation. That he can do this. The other thing is that the human mind functions in its own category. As I point out, modern man is seeing more and more of their categories in the mind of man. You can take Levi-Strauss, you can take uh, Noel Chomsky, these other men. They're finding there are categories in the human mind that make the human mind the human mind. So creation is only out of what God has already made on one hand, and it's according to what man is on the other side, which is very different, very different from God, because God has, didn't have to create in the, in the former thing. God did not have to create out of something that already existed. He, because he is infinite, was able to create wasn't what was never there. So therefore, creation is out of nothing, but not out of nothing, nothing. And really, this is a very important distinction. I urge upon you not to think I'm just talking gobbledygook. So therefore, it isn't that creation is out of nothing, nothing, because something was there, namely God, who makes promises, as we're told, before creation from the Father to the Son, and there was love between the Father and the Son, and there was communication between Father and the Son. There, these things existed before, and then there was a creation out of nothing. Well, then what is the out of nothingness? The out of nothingness is that the, the, the space-time continuum, the material universe, was brand new. It had never existed before. So it's in a way, it is very much parallel to... Um, uh, to the human artist, in another way, it's very different. We have to work through the manifestation of, of our material member. We can work through our fingers. The artist usually works through his fingers. He works through the material, he works through the material, his material members. God didn't, because God is infinite. He created, as it says here, by his spoken word. He's created by his spoken word. In Second Peter 3, 5, this is also emphasized, Second Peter 3, 5, for they willingly are ignorant, for this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing, and so on. So what they're ignorant of is that God spoke and it was. They're willingly ignorant of it. They turn their back upon the proof of it in the existence of the universe that is there in its form and the mannishness of man. They turn their back deliberately on this. But you will notice in this 3.5, that the word of God is not, has not come to an end. There will be another speaking of the word of God. In other words, God is not the deistic God. It isn't that he created and then went far away and has nothing to do, has nothing to do with, uh, with the earth anymore, the universe anymore. 
It is quite contrary to this. There is the, there is the machine portion of the universe, the cause and effect portion of the universe, but not only did God create it by his spoken word, but he can act into it by his spoken word. In other words, miracle is possible as well as creation. Once, once you have creation, the question of miracle is, is not, is no problem. The only reason that anybody really denies material, miracle as a theory, as a, as a concept, is because they're already committed as a face gesture to the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. So that's the only reason. So what you have, therefore, is the factor that, uh, that, uh, God, uh, that man, God has created, pardon me, by his spoken word, and he will speak. We're told that he will speak in judgment in the seventh verse. That the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, you notice it's tied up specifically. It's, it's antecedent is the word word in the fifth verse. By the same word are kept in store, reserved under fire in the day of judgment. So God has not become a prisoner of his creation. This is the point. He's not a prisoner of his creation. He has made the external world. It does exist apart from himself. It does go, it has a cause and effect reality. It is not God pulls the strings on everything it, they, as, a, as a puppet master. It really exists. It has significance. But God is not a prisoner of what he has made. And one day he will speak again in judgment. Now, the best expression of this, I think, as far as beauty is concerned, is in the Psalms. In Psalm 33, 6 and 9 is where you have this profound philosophic truth and depth set forth also in the area of sheer beauty. In the sixth verse, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host by the breath of his mouth. In the ninth verse, for he spoke and it was. I'm always sorry that in the King James translation they add the word done because they really spoil the force of it, especially for modern man. He spoke and it was. It did not have its existence, and then he spoke and it had its existence. This is the same thing we looked at back in John 1 this morning. He spoke and it had its existence. It, he brought it into being in modern terminology. So here you have this beautiful thing, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, for he spoke and it was. He spoke and it was. Well, what you have now as you come to this then is the, it is really the Christian answer to the problem of cosmogamy. Now, if you give up creation, if you give up creation, you have nowhere to go except modern man's position of the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. Because as I pointed out, there are only three basic answers to the existence of what is, the universe that is, either out of nothing, nothing, which nobody holds. Theoretically, you could hold it, but nobody holds it because it's impossible. And the other thing that you end with an impersonal or you end with a personal. So modern man, certainly as certainly as he rejects the creation by the personal, he will end up where modern man is. It isn't that he got here by tripping. He got here by mathematical precision, I would say. But as soon as you begin with an impersonal beginning, as soon as you begin with an impersonal beginning, uh, you are certain to end up in the place where modern man has with all its problems, with all the revolution, with all the chaos, with all the drug trips, with everything that follows, it all follows naturally out of the denial of creation. Uh, intellectually, as I said this morning, intellectually, when you're thinking intellectually, you always go back to the beginning. It was one of the very central rules of intellectual thought. You don't discuss problems in a vacuum. You go back to the beginning. Well, the beginning is either an impersonal beginning or it is a personal beginning. And if we give up creation as a space-time reality, then all that's left is semen veal. W-E-I-L. She's a Jewish girl who became a Roman Catholic, though I'm sure she never became a Christian from her writings. 
but she, uh, she was brilliant in her diagnosis. She's dead now. And she said the whole problem of modern man is that he lives in a decreated world. Now, she didn't mean by this that the world did not exist, but she meant that modern man thought it was autonomous. And because modern man thinks the world is autonomous, he has always problems. And once you take this, you are left then in a decreated world with man down in the lower story, with man only being a machine, and in the upper story, a world without categories. A world without categories, as I pointed out from the great filmmakers this morning. A world really without categories. You're left at some point, with or without drugs, with an irrational leak. Now this is what, now Kubek, Kubek in the, uh, in the Clockwork Orange was saying this. And he brilliantly set it forth, though I think he cheated in the last phrase. Uh, he did in 2001 too, the same way. But having said this, what he was really doing, according to his own analysis of his film, uh, was the fact that he was saying that you're either left with one possibility or the other since our revolution of 1964 on the Berkeley campus and the kids being where they are. That either you're left with a, the place where you're going to follow Skinner and condition people and turn them into mechanical things or you're going to have chaos. And he says you can have one or the other. So The Clockwork Orange is another one of the great philosophic films. It's not to be looked at merely as pornographic, though it is pornographic, but you have to realize it's a great philosophic film as well. It says, thoroughly, society is faced with its two choices and there's not a third. That either it will have rape in the streets, either it will have cruelty and non horrible non-humanity, or on the other hand, you will go to the other kind of non-humanity, and that is culture will condition its people. And then Quebec at the end, he did cheat, incidentally, in parenthesis, by giving that last frame where suddenly uh, Alex, uh, again, is in the, uh, is in the erotic. erotic. Uh, but I think he cheated here. He should have stopped the film one frame before that to really make the most out of his, uh, his message. I think he just couldn't stand his own message, and so he added the last frame. I think this is really what happened to Quebec. He couldn't stand his own message in its purity. And so he, he added the last frame as a leap again into the dark, and he kind of leaped in the dark. But I think in the, uh, you're either going to be faced with a dying culture and the conditioning, conditioning of men, um, uh, or you have to come to the opposite beginning, and the opposite beginning is a personal beginning. It's as simple, I think, as this. But once we come to the absolute, to the God who is there and who has not been silent, to use my terminology in my book, and you, to the, uh, with absolute creativeness, all changes. Then I can know, even though not exhaustively, the why something is there. And a reasonable answer, not only why it is there, but why it has its form, and why man is unique in his management, as opposed to non-man. So everything immediately changes. But it hangs very, very profoundly. It hangs very, very profoundly on whether you begin with a personal or an impersonal beginning. But I would end again where I didn't spoke in Jeremiah, and that is, and it doesn't end as an abstraction, because this God can be our portion. If we come to him in the way God has indicated in the scripture, we are to come. Now, this is the Christian cosmogony. And you remember why I put it in at this particular place. I put it in at this particular place because I had come to the, uh, very, uh, had been an, giving a, an analysis uh, of the, uh, an analysis of the modern man's cosmogony and the fact that all modern man's dilemma has sprung from the fact of an impersonal beginning. Now, here's the, here's the Christian answer in the Christian sense of cosmogamy, and it is, the, uh, it is a personal beginning. So this fits right here, this concept of a, the 
the positive stating of the Christian cosmogamy I place in contrast to the non-Christian cosmogamy and where it leads. Now I want to go on next step and begin to develop because we're going to run out of time. We only have today and tomorrow. Uh, the next step I want to do is to go on beyond this and see what we can think comes next in our society. What comes next? What comes next in our culture? What comes next in our society? Well, I would give you a rule sociologically, and this rule will, it will always stand up. And that is, sociologically, if there's no absolute whereby to judge society, society's absolute. Do let me say it again. If there's no absolute whereby to judge society, society is absolute. Now, this is still, this is going back again to the, to the, to the understanding of the profound understanding of Aristotle, that you need absolute. But you need them in every realm, and you need them in sociological things as well. Now, Christianity, after the Reformation, has produced the Northern European culture. And Samuel Rutherford was, in some ways, the most important man, 1644 to 1660. And the... Uh, he wrote a book called Lex Rex, Law's King, in which he laid down really the foundation for that which later became the formulation of the Northern European sociological culture. And in it, he was saying, he said, because God has spoken, because God has spoken, therefore you have a foundation for your law. Now, Locke came along, and Locke, uh, Locke, secularized it. And then the founders of the American Constitution, well, undoubtedly most of them were deists rather than clear biblical Christians, yet built on this in two streams. Witherspoon, the great Presbyterian, brought the concepts of Samuel Rutherford directly to the Constitutional Convention. A man like Jefferson would have fed the, con the concepts of Samuel, uh, of Samuel Rutherford into the Constitutional Convention, but strained through the fabric of a secularization by Locke. But they both went back to the same place. There are certain inalienable rights. And that's a meaningful sentence because there's some basis to say it on. Because as God has spoken propositionally, it's possible to have law rather than arbitrary actions of men. This is the whole point. Law is king rather than men, men and their arbitrary actions being king. And the reason law is king rather than arbitrary actions of men being king is because there's a basis to build on. Now, in losing our whole, uh, losing our whole culture in America as we have, one of the aspects we have lost is this. And after Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, we, the concept of, this concept was given up and we're returned now to sociological law. I remember the American Bar Association at certain, at a certain point a few years ago raised a great cry and a hue and a cry because suddenly everything was changed. You had, you weren't building any longer on the past. You were, you were generating sociological law. In other words, you were making arbitrary absolutes out of the courts and from the law. But you must see that there's a reason for this. It's that like everything else, it's a result of, of what has happened. That this too was as natural as the revolt by the Berkeley students in 1964. At some place, men would come to this. 
But with Sammy Rutherford, Lex Rex, you have an entirely different situation. You have a situation where because God has spoken, you have something to build on. And you're not left with the arbitrary choices of men, whether it's the king or anybody else. It doesn't float in space. Now, the best illustration I know of this is by the Swiss painter Paul Robert. And it's in the old Supreme Court building in Montpellier in Lausanne, which was a Supreme Court building up till relatively few years ago. They have a larger one now, still in Lausanne. Uh, but Paul Robert was a born-again artist who painted around between 1890 and 1900. I don't know the exact date. I forget now when he did this thing. Uh, but they asked him to paint a mural in the Supreme Court building, which the Supreme Court justices would have to pass as they came to judge their cases. And I can just see, see old Paul Robert. I know the man who led him to the Lord, actually. He was a real Christian, Paul Robert. He was the greatest artist of that period in Switzerland and also had become a, a, a very, very real Christian and a comprehending one. And I can just imagine, I, I never knew him, I know his son. And I can just imagine sitting down and thinking, what can I paint? What can I paint that will say what I want to say? And he painted something that I think is magnificent in every regard. And that is, he called it justice instructing the judges. And down in the forefront of the picture, there's all sorts of litigation. And then he has the judges standing with their little white dickies, the way they are in Europe, and these are the judges. Now, how are the judges going to judge the litigation? What is the base they're going to judge on? And then he has justice standing, not blindfolded, but unblindfolded, and not with his sword vertical, but pointing to a book. And on the book he has written the word of God. Well, this is really profound. Because our culture had this space. We had a form and a freedom. And Northern European culture, which would include the United States, the Northern European culture was able to have more freedom than anybody's ever had in the history of men without chaos. Because they had a form, to, a form as well inside of which to have freedom. Now then, as soon as you give up the form, the freedom, which is such a glorious thing, becomes chaos. So we have, as, as our professors and everybody else, in what I call this line of despair, in all the various branches, they've come down and they've destroyed our base. They mustn't be surprised now that there's going to be chaos instead of, uh, instead of freedom inside of a form. There's no form in which to have the freedom, so the freedom becomes chaos. Now with this, I'd like to conclude by saying quickly that after you, after you, throw, after you have no solid base upon which to build sociologically, after you have no absolute by which to judge society. You only have three other possibilities sociologically, and not four. You only have three throughout the world's history, east and west, ancient and modern. The first is a hedonism, or a hedonism, however you want to pronounce it, which means that everybody does what they want. Everybody does what they want. Now, this leads to a chaos in society. You cannot build a society upon hedonism. It can't be done. The, the hippie culture, beginning in 1964, uh, was, uh, was a hedonist culture with their drugs, but also in their philosophy. Just let me do my own thing. Let me do my own thing. And there was no, um, there's no grounds for building a society this way. You cannot build a society. As a matter of fact, I always like to point out that you can only be a hedonist as long as you have one man on a desert island. As soon as you have two men on a desert island, you have a problem. Because consider for a moment, if you will, the two hedonists meeting in the middle of a log over a deep ravine. Something's going to give. They both can't have their own way. Now, when you come to this, therefore, we see that hedonism will always lead to chaos. 
And society cannot stay in chaos. It's Quebec's chaos again for Alex before he was conditioned in the clockwork orange. So therefore, let us take hedonism and put it aside, because you can't use hedonism to build a society. The second possibility is the absoluteness of the 51%. The absoluteness of the 51%. That the 51% is always right. The 51% is always right. And we must see uh, that much of modern sociological thinking really runs in this line. Kinsey, for example, his big contribution that Kinsey made was not just describing sexually the male and the female, but putting forth the concept that sexually whatever the, major whatever the majority was doing at any one given moment was right sexually. And that has become the basis of our sexual morals. Just like if Sweden runs this way. But it isn't only Sweden run this way, we run this way. We run this way. Whatever the majority is doing at any one moment is, is right. Marshall McLuhan took it a step further and suggested that now we have our great big supercomputers, uh, that there will come a day, uh, a possible day, when the world will be hooked up to the computer bank, and within a few hours we'll be able to tell what the majority is thinking at any one moment, and that becomes law. And he put this forth as a serious thing. Now, Marshall McLuhan is out of favor now. He's no longer the great guru. But having said this, nevertheless, nevertheless, what he, he said some things which were profound. And that whatever, whatever was thought to be right at any given moment, so much so that he said democracy is finished. We will soon come to the place where we will vote no more. But then you have Kinsey, as I say, putting down the same proposition in the sexual realm. But of course you have a problem. And that is then, if Hitler had 51% of the vote, he was right in killing the Jews. Because there's no moral absolute by which to judge above the 51%. The 51% is absolute. Now, back in our previous days of our Christian Northern European culture, we had a different situation. 51%, 60% could vote, and one little man could stand up with a Bible in his hand and say, 51% or not, you're wrong. But that's because, you see, you had a form in which you were having your freedom, or an absolute by which to judge society. But if you have no absolute by which to judge society, society is absolute. Now, there's only one, there's only a third possibility after hedonism and the absoluteness of 51%. And I think most of us would, would quail before the, a real dictatorship of the 51%, with no restraint, even though that's where we're living at the present time, sociologically. What the majority votes is right, period, paragraph, so stop. The third possibility, and I'll stop there then, we'll pick it up tomorrow, is the fact that if you get rid of hedonism and you get rid of the absoluteness of 51%, all that's left to you, if there's no absolute by which to judge society, is that either one man or a group will come forward who will set up arbitrary absolutes for society. In other words, you either have a dictatorship of one man or an elite. And I don't believe there's any other possibility. I don't believe another one exists. And so what we're left with then is we have no longer, we no longer have the absolute that gave us our, our stability in our culture with freedom, not saying it's perfect by any means, the way we practice it, but as we do it, we must realize, and we, hedonism will not be accepted by society. It said, as you know, that nature abhors a vacuum. Well, society abhors a vacuum too. You cannot have a vacuum in these areas. Well, then I think we're, we're left with these possibilities. With hedonism or the absolute of 51%, or there'll be an elite or an individual come forward to set up arbitrary absolutes.